Hey, everybody. I, for one, am not having a normal week. If I sound different, it's because I don't want to speak too loudly, because I'm afraid I'll wake my kids up if I get too lively in here. You see, my lovely wife caught some good old-fashioned COVID in San Francisco over the weekend, but so far myself and the boys are all virus-free, but we are quite stressed, so sleep is a precious commodity. So my week is not great, but that's no reason that yours can't be extra special, which is why I'm so very pleased to bring you this episode of Candid, where I had the pleasure of interviewing Luke Anderson, co-founder at Can. Luke and I spoke for a condensed 30 minutes, but he managed to pack enough wisdom and fun in there to fill two hours. You'll see. We were able to touch on his early days as a goody two-shoes, how he was raised by a single mother, and his first and quite memorable two-day hangover when he turned 30. I asked him about inventing a category. We talked about the Swiss-German flavor experts. Then we touched on how some dispensary staff have trouble making sense of stockout reports. And finally, we discussed the heritage of queer culture and how Can is playing a role in bridging the gap between gay zeitgeist and pop culture. Overall, what a gosh darn pleasure this was. Please enjoy. Wow, that's really candid. time I consumed cannabis was oof. so my um my godmother when I was 18 asked me if I wanted to smoke something and I was like I barely even drink beer I am conditioned to think that weed is so bad and illicit and I was a, a goody two-shoes um like the kind of kid in high school who would basically tell everybody who was drinking and partying, like you're wasting your life away. And like you are, you know, supposed to be focused on getting into college. And this is just setting a bad example. Like the, the person that you would not invite to a party. Um, <laughs> and, and then my godmother, who was this like epic stoner um, and, and like very stylish, like famous interior decorator. Uh, she, she was just like, yeah, like it's, you know, Saturday night, like, do you want to smoke something? And I was like, I, I, I guess, like, I didn't want to say no. Um, cause I had so much respect for her. And, and so I think, you know, uh, it's p- peer pressure. It really does work. <laughs> um, but it wasn't a great experience for me. And I think a lot of people's first experiences with cannabis, they, they cough a little bit and then suddenly they're so high that they don't even want to be in their own body, let alone in a conversation. Yeah. And I um, had a couple of misadventures in college where I ate a pot brownie that just like sent me into the stratosphere. And I, I definitely have had a weed blackout before. Like, I don't know how I ended up in a conversation with a group of people I didn't know at a late night dining hall and, and like doing accents and, and impersonations of people that I don't have any right to do impersonations of and and one or two of those traumatic social experiences and you're like no i'm done forever mm-hmm. obviously you weren't done forever what 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 happened from that point how did you how did you rejoin cannabis well i i definitely leaned into drinking very very hard in college mm-hmm. and um frat culture and chicken tenders uh, and ranch dressing at 2 a.m. Like it, it sort of just kept this flywheel going of like more booze, 
more being drunk and socially numb. And what's strange about it is that when you're high, you are very socially okay. Like you, mm-hmm. you are fun to, to have around because you're just like a little cautious and you laugh a lot. And when you're drunk, you are messy and mean and you are the only one who doesn't know this. Mm-hmm. You, you've killed enough brain cells that you don't, that you lack the social awareness to be able to participate in a way that other people actually want you to. Right. And so for about seven or eight years, I was just a pure drunk mess. And I barely would uh, make it to, you know, my activities on a Sunday, if at all, mm-hmm. and would use the entire day to, to just recover so that I could show up to work and be a human on a Monday. Mm-hmm. When I was 30, um, I had my first two day long hangover when like the Saturday night bled into a Monday morning. And my good friend, Jake, who had grown up in Colorado, he had witnessed the legalization happen and, and had this theory that like microdose beverage was the future because you consume cannabis, um, it, you, well, you consume alcohol with a microdose of alcohol in something sessionable, mm-hmm. like a beer or a glass of wine. Like there's a small enough amount of alcohol in it that it you could categorize it as a microdose. And and coffee and tea, it's it's a microdose of caffeine in those beverages. So why wouldn't cannabis, when the infrastructure develops, kind of follow that same sort of pattern? Yeah, I thought it was the dumbest idea in the world. I was like, I'm trying to get off drinking. Like, why would I start drinking drugs? Like, this is just. Uh, a recipe for disaster. Um, but hangover prevention was the hook. It mm-hmm. was, you know, I was already doing these 30 day breaks from drinking or um, like alternating with water and, and, or sometimes just taking one night off. And I felt like I missed out on the whole social routine of being mildly buzzed. Yeah. And so if I could do that and, and not have a hangover the next day, and, and I would experiment with taking like a, a nibble off of a gummy, a two milligram amount off a 10 milligram thing mm-hmm. and, and realize that like, it was just enough to make me want to drink less booze in that night or be a substitute for booze if, if I was really motivated. Yeah. And, and so then I said, Hey, like I'll quit my job. Uh, I was, I was helping big multinational CPG companies launch brands and, uh, and do product innovation with short timelines and hyper-focused experiments. And, mm-hmm. and I said, Hey, I think like, I know how to try to get an LA local one skew, one retailer launch going. If, if you understand the product and what it should look like, then let's design the packaging and pick the ingredients so that somebody like you, who's familiar with cannabis and somebody like me who wants nothing to do with it would mm-hmm. both show up and, and purchase. two shoes in, in high school. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your upbringing. Why, why were you like that? What was the, the pervasive theme uh, and perspective on cannabis and drugs? Honestly, I kind of like grew up in a family where smoking weed and doing drugs and like not being a goody two shoes was the norm. Wow. But almost as an act of rebellion, yeah. I was like, no, like I'm going to just like study my butt off and that's my way of like getting my um energy out um but i think that what's important to know about it's not that like my family was like a a bunch of drug addicts it was that like my family was very accepting and Mm -hmm. very 
allowing of whatever journey any of the kids in our extended family, and I had one of 25 or 30 cousins on my mom's side alone. Wow. Um, and my mom raised me as a single mom. It, it was just like, whatever makes you happy, like you can do. And, and so I, I think that the open-mindedness and the ability to change your routine and, and, and try something new, that was deeply ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so necessary for a leap of faith like that. I don't think it's super common for people to leave uh, what sounds like a very stable uh, career and head into something like this. So is that, does that kind of attitude inform your entrepreneurial spirit? It has to, yeah? Yeah, anything impractical and that like a financial <laughs> advisor would, would say no to, that's my bread and butter. Uh, and And I think that like, you know, leaving a corporate job to do cannabis. So like that's, that's tough because as it's developing, it carries a stigma professionally for a lot longer than I think it carries a stigma just personally and socially. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to be a, a principal of a school one day. And I think I had to just jump into this and say, I may not actually be a viable candidate for that if I go into the weed world. Right. But I think being in the riskiest and most tiny subsegment beverage and also microdose beverage, it almost mitigates against that risk. Yeah. Because making a healthy alcohol substitute that objectively helps people with a problem that they're trying to solve and that makes them, you know, harm themselves and harm others. Like the conversations that we're not having around drunk driving and domestic violence and how alcohol I think directly causes these things. In drunk driving it's just it's in the name. Yeah. Uh, and that like there there isn't really a a like a high driving or like a stoned violence kind of a problem <laughs> and we we should be having those conversations and um when you think about cannabis as a solution to a public health and safety issue uh it really starts to take a different shape Talk to me about inventing a category because it's a very specific subsegment. To your point, it's also a very specific usage occasion. Although it's it's universal if you can convince people to to use it as a substitute. But at the time that you were going to market in these small trials in L.A., wherever it was, it didn't exist. Am I correct? No, and it's funny. Like you'll see, there are two milligram beverages with lemon, blood orange, and grapefruit flavors, like all over the place. Now there are lots of them. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I think it's a great like compliment um, because it means that, that there is value in what we're doing. For the first year, everyone just told us, get the hell out of here. Like this is, it, you know, people are buying dollar per milligram of THC and the use cases are sleep, pain, and anxiety. And anybody telling you different is, is wrong. Um, when you create a category, you have to go so hard against the grain that your skin gets incredibly thick you, you become used to no, and, and you have to have a major ego death moment um, over and over again in order to sustain those like beginnings of, of sprouting. Yeah. Um, and, and the North Star that Jake and I had was we just kept looking at each other and saying, like, would we pay money for this? Like, would we drink this? And, and if we can solve our own problem, with it and and make something that makes us happy um then there are people out there like us and if you just ignore people who say no and you find people who say yes 
then you know as long as they keep coming back and the repurchase rate is there in the early days it's a good bet and right. so for us it was all about well if we're seeing people are buying this and then they're not anymore that's a, that's a bad if there's a 40% repurchase rate then let's raise a fuck ton of money and and go yeah yeah um it, how long did it take because i let me preface this. I struggle with this whole mentality of we need super high octane, high THC, and and that's that's how consumers shop. I reject that wholesale because I don't think that's true. I think it's uh, what is ultimately available. So yes, sales data may support that, right? But it's only because you have purchasing managers stocking shelves with high octane shit. So it's a it's a terrible little cycle. So you had a theory that that you and Jake wanted something you you had something to solve you had a problem to solve how did you prove it that there were other people um outside of sales data like how long did it take from the first conversation you had with a dispensary owner or a purchasing manager to hey we're, we're actually finding people that that need this it took um well we were smart about it in that we picked MedMen first yeah. as problematic of an institution as MedMen has been in the past what they did right was they built a consumer brand that attracted the kind of curious consumer mm -hmm. by making it feel like a, a shopping experience that resembled something else that yeah. they would do. Like it, it feels, a, you know, the Apple store references aside, going to MedMen feels like going to another store on Abbott Kinney, yeah. whereas going to a dispensary typically feels like, like, am I in trouble? Or, <laughs> Or is this a pharmacy or somewhere? Right. And so we, we said, if it can work in MedMen, then if it doesn't work in MedMen, it doesn't. MedMen, it worked. But the hard part was all of the other shops that had this high THC mentality and weren't trying to create a, a new normal from a purchasing experience perspective, that, that uphill battle was next to impossible. And, and what we almost did was say like, screw it. Let's have really small aspirations. It's not working. And let's only do med men and ease and D to C. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I said, well, like, what if I stood in Urba in Santa Monica, Stoner Central, but they see a thousand people on a Saturday. And, and I just stood there and I sampled all day. Mm -hmm. How many of those people could I have a productive conversation with? And if not about their needs, could I have a productive conversation with them about they're friends who don't use cannabis. Right. There is a social capital to introducing a cannabis product to somebody that I feel like everyone is undervaluing in the market. It's it's if you can make cannabis accessible for somebody and solve their alcohol substitution pain point as a friend, yeah. you're a good friend. Yeah. And and so we we saw Herba go from like no sales, just leaving the product there. To after a month, like we we could sell five thousand dollars in wholesale in one shop, just by dialing in the message, being present, and integrating with their team. Right. So it, you know, once we found out that it could work in the hardest, most uphill environment, then we really were prepared to just like to just go go go. But it didn't fix the problem because, like you said, dispensary buyers and retail allocation planning exercises they favor the high thc stuff in such a disproportionate way yeah we're given one percent maximum to play mm -hmm. and and within that one percent we're probably under 
performing because the velocity data doesn't take into account flavor specific, SKU specific stockouts mm-hmm. or even category level stockouts. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, an experience with a buyer one time where they were like, okay, we placed a $50,000 order last month for the network, but now we're going to place a $5,000 order because we looked at the last seven days of sales and we only sold a few boxes. So something's wrong. I, I like went in and I was like, well, hold on a minute. You've been out of stock for six and a half of the last seven days. And so if you're just doing the straight multiplication and then they're like, oh, thank you so much for like pointing that out to me. I understand. Like if, you, if it's 1% of your business, you're not going to pay attention to it. You're not going to devote the time to something that feels fringe, right. especially when the industry still hasn't figured itself out yet and nobody's really winning. It, like, you know, I get that. So beverage has a, a especially microdose beverage, has a very uphill battle still. Um, but once it becomes consistently available and there are good tasting products in every rec legal market, you will see a massive change happen almost overnight. From a from an anecdotal standpoint, I have so many people that that love microdose beverage and, and can specifically. Uh, I hear about it all the time, right? It, it's it's kind of like a, a wave, a groundswell, right? You hear about it a lot. It's still a tiny a tiny component of the market. Is it truly? Uh, it just needs time to grow, and it needs uh, it needs people to do proper math on stockouts to to grow that way. Is that the only impediment? Are there supply chain things like how do, how do, how do you view that? I think there are five things holding beverage back. Um, dosing and consistent like two milligram is at least available for you in a dispensary. Yeah. Um, you know, every dispensary had two milligram beverages heroed, and that was the first thing they recommended to a new consumer. That would solve a huge problem, but it's just mm-hmm. not happening yet today. Um, we showed in California and with the rise of all of our competitors out here, that when that happens, it, it, it does good things for the overall beverage category. Um, the second thing is branding. You cannot have beverages that look like they're from a gas station in 1995. It's not what the consumer wants. They have to look and feel like a brand that exists in Whole Foods. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to want to hold it in your hand at a party. Um, and so the, the brands that are leaning into more stonerific um, psychedelic imagery it's it's good for a certain subsegment of the population, but it doesn't help with the ubiquitousness of mm-hmm. cannabis beverage. Third, once you've got the um, outside of the package done, the juice has to taste good. Yeah, People aren't focused on formulation. They're like, how do we make zero calorie fast onset beverages? And I don't care what anybody says. If it hits you in 10 minutes versus five, nobody really cares. If it tastes bad when it touches your taste buds, like that turns somebody off, not just from that beverage, but from the entire category. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there are very few beverages out there that I actually enjoy drinking. Like, I, I think Hi Fi Hops is a great um, hop flavored sparkling water. Mm-hmm. I like their one milligram skew. Um, Warren Bobrow has made an incredibly delicious, like rice vinegar inspired cocktail called Klaus, but that's still just kind of getting going mm-hmm. um most of the beverages out there like uh, discerning consumer just wouldn't want to drink a second time so we need more good tasting beverages no chemicals no weed taste um you know terpene inspired botanical inspired those are things that are flying off the shelves at air one we, mm-hmm. we need more of that here um but the final two pieces that are holding the industry back are price 
and and not price per milligram, but price per drink. Yeah. Yeah. And at like you know three to four dollars a drink, it, it's it's actually one of the least expensive beverages that you can get. Um, and and this idea that like we're selling eight dollars for a single beverage, I think it it doesn't help the category grow to its full extent because you know we're not even paying that for like the fanciest kombucha at the most overpriced retail. Right. And and this per drink price thing, which dovetails with the final factor um, availability, it, those are like a chicken or the egg issue that we haven't as an industry solved. You need mm-hmm. better co-packers that can do huge volumes. But in order for the co-packers to exist and run continuously, you need the retailers to allocate wall-to-wall fridges and tons of assortment and and have the bud tenders be recommending these things. Yeah. And so it goes all the way back to the beginning. And we're going to kind of stay stuck here, largely because state by state, no interstate commerce. Like you, you have to make a different label in California, Arizona, and Nevada. Are you kidding me? With a different manufacturing facility? I, I really hope that in the first wave of federal regulations that we allow for um, like quick cross-border commerce and like mm-hmm. unified packaging um, for microdose products at least. Because yeah. those are the ones that are the least dangerous and, and should just be like, you know, on shelves in grocery stores. How did you make the first one? What did it taste like? Like, wh- wh- how did that happen? Did you make it in a, in a bathtub? <laughs> Um, I, I'm lucky, um, on my dad's side of the family, there's a rich history of culinary and, um, F and B just knowledge. And, and my, my dad has, um, owned a number of restaurants in New York and in, uh, central and South America. I gave him a call and I was like, you know, I want to make something that's like cocktail inspired, low sugar, low calorie, but like interesting fruit herb pairings and and just feels good in your mouth and he told me the swiss german flavor experts they make the best natural flavorings for beverage and so go there and then look at it at the heritage of the ingredients so um lemons like get them from sicily here's a lemon farm in sicily that really blew my mind when i visited and and so what we did was we just followed a formula we said let's let's pick a really good fruit juice, a really pure and and well executed herbal flavor, and then I've been in, interested in using agave nectar in beverage formulation for a very long time. Nobody was doing it a couple of years ago. It's popping up all over the place now. Mm. It's just a it's an interesting sweetener. It's it's so complex and warm, and I think it tastes sweeter per calorie than sugar, and uh, that's why we can make a thirty calorie beverage mm-hmm. that. You drink three of them and it's less than a spike seltzer, but it tastes so much better because you don't have the, the calories from alcohol. And if you follow that formula, then you can really say like, you know, what kind of interesting fruit and herb combo can I make? And in working with good food scientists, you can get the exact amount of each that, that makes it feel like it's this just timeless Coca-Cola, Kentucky fried chicken level iconic recipe. Yeah. And the blood orange cardamom and the lemon lavender cans, like they have such strong appeal and and very high repurchase that I think they'll really stand the test of time. I agree. They at least stand the test of time in my house, uh, in my garage fridge. It's pretty stocked at all times. Um, I want to ask you about marketing because I think it's a 
it's a it's a wonderful case study for a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs what what you folks have done um obviously it's informed because you worked in cpg and you worked in that in that whole space um how how did you go about branding how did you go about growing uh overall marketing like what what did that look like because you've done a phenomenal job i'm just curious what went into that Jake is an insane details guy, and um, I would have launched with our V1, 2, or 3 packaging, and he made us wait until V8. Um, and, and even when we were about to launch, we then even doubled back and worked with an incredible designer, um, an incredible creative at Red Antler to redo our logo, to really just like package it all up. Yeah. Uh, and, and the details, the same way I, I think about like how do we pick ingredients and make them come together, uh, I think Jake has taught me and, and has informed the brand's development visually on like, how do you think about each line weight and each symbol and, and how it all comes together? Um, we work with an amazing designer in Costa Mesa um, uh, who uh, is also queer and, 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 you know, part of our brand, I think that's really important and that we'll see a lot in, in the coming month is, is the, you know, heritage of queer culture. And, and how do we capitalize on, on the things that, um, that are popular in the, the gay zeitgeist, but that eventually get out there and become popular for straight people as well? Uh, queers are really proud to, I think, germinate a lot of, a lot of very fun and interesting creative things. And um, uh, the packaging and the creative work, they go hand in hand. We would yeah. never have celebrity partners if the product didn't just look as beautiful and iconic and not cannabis um as it does right and and i think that the celebrities trust us and and our our network of queer creatives that we have kind of brought in uh and it's it, the balance of our, our creative team internal and partners they tend to be queer um for for just the consistency of how we do storytelling mm -hmm. and and you know i think Having a Gwyneth Paltrow, a Kate Hudson, and you know, we worked on that iHeart Jane can mm -hmm. collab uh, where Kate Hudson was dancing around and like mixing booze and weed playfully, and somehow making it look family friendly. Right. And and I think um, I think that like the goal here is is take what what comes from a really specific diversity and inclusion place and make a case for it being normal because there's something inherently queer about cannabis. The fact that like, like I look at like alcohol as like a straight, you know, socially conservative entity. And then cannabis is like uh, a young gay kid in the South who like is told he's not allowed to be who he is. Yeah. And until we get equal rights and dignity in the eyes of the law and the federal government, <laughs> like we will not rest. Um, it's, it's fun, playful, but socially conscious, creative stuff like that, that really gets me out of bed. I think a lot of people have found uh, comfort. I think a lot of people have found a way to socialize and feel normal that they truly didn't have because they weren't going to go out and smoke a joint before a family event. But we do have can at family events. So thank you for what you're doing, man. I'm a huge, huge fan, and I appreciate you being here. I'll come back anytime, and uh, I can't wait to do holiday video part two with you all uh, this this winter. Let's let's go even more family friendly and even more weird at the same time, and. Hopefully, if we continue to take steps like that together, uh, we'll 
this thing will, this thing being cannabis will look a lot more normal than it did five years ago.